Galatians chapter 5. We're back there in Galatians, there in the middle of chapter 5, after last week's side trip to Habakkuk and our Easter uh, sermon, and looking there uh, as we did. We're back in the middle of chapter 5 in Galatians, and back to the middle of a mess that Paul, and to a lesser extent I've gotten us into, talking about freedom, talking about Christian liberty, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the law. And along the way, I've said some pretty shocking things, things that even my own daughter didn't agree with, things like Christians don't have to obey. That the law has no binding authority over us. That our obedience is is not a requirement for our being saved, nor for our staying saved. That you don't lose your salvation due to a lack of obedience. You know, I say those shocking things because to believe otherwise is essentially what we mean by the term legalism. Looking to your obedience to the law either to get you saved or to keep you saved. Looking to the law to either get God's favor or to maintain God's favor. That's legalism. And legalism is a huge enemy of the gospel. It taints it. It waters it down and ultimately it destroys the gospel of glorious grace available to us in Jesus. See, a a dependence upon law and upon grace, they just don't mix. They can't be held together. Legalism is an enemy of the gospel, but it's not the only enemy. The second big enemy of the gospel is license. And so if legalism is clinging too tightly to the law, of looking for it to do something that it was never intended to do, then license, on the other hand, is a total abandoning of the law. No restraints whatsoever. Do whatever you darn well please. See, both legalism and license deny the power of the gospel and as such are her enemies. Now, after some of the shocking ways that I've been describing our scandalous freedom, some of you have already read ahead. And you know what's in verse 13, and you've been wondering, now how is he going to make that jive with some of those crazy things that he has said? You've been wondering, you've been hoping perhaps that I might have to retract some of those things that I said. Well, you will find out today. So stand if you're able for the reading of these three verses from the middle of chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, God's very word. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, 
Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. May God bless the reading, the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. God, we need your help. We want to get this right. We need to get this right. Lord, we want to know what it means to live in gospel freedom and not to succumb to one of the enemies of the gospel. Lord, show us clearly. Holy Spirit, lead us into truth that we might glorify and enjoy you, that we might know more fully what it means to be loved by Jesus and accepted by you in this glorious gospel. So help us this morning, we pray, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So the question this morning is, do I have to take back any of those shocking things that I said about the gospel? About our scandalous freedom. That remains to be seen as we cover these four things. There's an outline in your worship folder. Uh, we'll cover what, it, what freedom is and what it is not. We'll look at what it means to abuse that freedom. We'll look at what the solution is to the abuse of freedom. And then finally, uh, what's at stake? Uh, or else, what? Right? If we abuse freedom, what happens? Or if we neglect freedom altogether and, and just go back to legalism, what's at stake? So those four things, we'll start, number one, with what is freedom? Verse 13, you were called to freedom, which we hear in that echoes of verse 1, if you can remember back that far in chapter 5, right? For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Fight for that freedom. Don't neglect it. Don't go back to bondage. All right, so if we've been called to it, we've been set free for it, we're to fight for it and stand firm in it, we better know what it is. And I actually started to cut this part of the sermon short on defining what freedom is, because we've already looked at that, right? We've already spent some time there. But just because we've gone over something before doesn't make it a waste of time to look at it again, to be reminded again and again of what Christ purchased for us and obtained for us. Because this isn't merely intellectual knowledge that we're talking about here. right? We're not just after checking a box and saying, yep, I've got that concept, now let's move on to something I don't know. right? If that is your thinking, be careful. Be careful, because the crucial question here is not whether you've stored some facts in that noggin of yours, but what's going to make or break you is whether they've sunk down deep into your heart and are affecting your life. And friends, that takes time, and that takes repetition. That's why the biblical authors repeat themselves so much. Jesus did it, Paul did it, and it's not because they lacked new material. It's because they knew how slow of heart we are and how badly we need to remember and be reminded and dwell upon and meditate on the glorious truths of the gospel. 
if we have any hope of being changed and transformed by the gospel, we've got to be reminded again and again. And so far from a waste of time to look at these things again, it's an investment of our time to, rem- to be reminded of what freedom is, that we've been set free from the guilt and power of sin, that we've been set free from the punishment of sin because it was poured out on our Savior. We've been set free from the sin-producing power of the law. Right? It was the law that showed us what sin was in the first place. We've been set free from the burden of guilty consciences. When we continue to blow it on the regular. Freedom from thinking that our security, the security of our relationship, somehow ebbs and flows like our obedience ebbs and flows. Our freedom is knowing that we're accepted by God. That we have peace with Him. That His favor and His smile are upon you. And they don't fade or dim when sin rears its ugly head and we blow it again. Not even when we've blown it in the worst possible way does his smile fade or his favor dim. Freedom is knowing that you are loved fully and freely. Y'all, that's what it means to be free. That's what freedom is. That's what we need to dwell upon and meditate on again and again and again. And as we do that, that gives some clarity about what freedom is not. See, freedom is, is not whatever we want it to be. It doesn't mean we get to go and do whatever we want whenever we want. It doesn't mean that we get to be whoever or whatever we want to be. Y'all, that's a distortion of freedom. And it's deadly. And and so the classic example, I think, of of, of distorted freedom would would be the goldfish in the bowl. Right? Longs for freedom. Right? Get me out of this thing. Right? Life out there has got to be so much better. Right? But then the day that he finally decides to make a break for it, and he's laying there flopping on the table, he begins to have some different thoughts about what freedom is. Right? So that's the classic example. A newer example would be Olaf. Right? Y'all are probably pining after some examples from Frozen since Pastor Sean left. Right? So here's your Frozen example. Right? Olaf. Right? What did Olaf want freedom from? He wanted freedom from winter, from the doldrums of winter. He had his sights set on. He was dreaming about, he was singing about the wonderful warmth of summer, right? Tanning on a beach, right? And so as he sings his song, oblivious to the ridiculous danger that he's singing about, right? We find it humorous and we laugh that he doesn't understand the tragic end that he's singing about. But it's not so humorous when it's us or when it's our friends or our neighbors who long for what they think is freedom 
not knowing that disregarding what our Creator has intended for us to do and to be would actually be deadly. We are called to freedom, but it's His freedom. It's not the freedom of our own invention. So the point of this is to say that we can get freedom wrong. We can misunderstand what it means to be free. But we can also understand well what it is and abuse that freedom. So point two, what's it like to abuse freedom? That's what Paul's getting here in in verse 13. You've been called to freedom, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So that word there, opportunity, if you've got the NIV, I think it says as, uh, to indulge the flesh. That word's a, a military word. Uh, it, it's kind of like a base of operations, right? So, so think of, of using your flesh as, as a base from which to launch missiles for the flesh, for, for, for desires that come from that fallen human nature, that, that rebellious and self-centered part of us that wants what we want when we want it. And Paul's saying that's, that's not what freedom is, is for. If we've been freed from sin, from its guilt and its power and its pun- punishment, then it is nonsensical for us to use that very freedom to return back to the thing from which we were freed. That makes about as much sense as, as Olaf thinking that the wonderful extremes of heat and cold would go so well together. Using your freedom to sin makes you slaves all over again. Returning to your sin, practicing your sin, Jesus says in John 8, makes you a slave. Make sin your master. And so you're no longer free. See, freedom is not a license to do whatever you want, whatever you please. To do so is self-enslaving. It's self-destroying. So why is this warning here? Why all of a sudden, after Paul's been going on and on and on about freedom, why is this warning here? Is it because the Galatians were doing that? Is it because they were using their freedom as license and they were living loosely? That doesn't appear to be the case. It it actually seems, we've already seen, right, that Just the opposite was true, right? Their temptation was toward taking up the suggestion of of these false teachers and these Judaizers and not neglecting the law but doubling down on it. Trying to ensure God's favor through their obedience. Now I think this warning is here not because the Galatians had something to correct. This warning is here, I think, because it's something Paul was accused of promoting. See, if Paul tells people, you're free from the law, well, then they're going to start living like the devil. 
And so these accusations that he faced, while untrue, do come with the territory of preaching a gospel of scandalous grace and freedom. A gospel that really does sound a little too good to be true, right? It's actually a bit of a litmus test, I think. Right? If you are not, from time to time, accused of preaching cheap grace, have you really mined the depths of grace in what you're communicating to your neighbors? Right? If they don't come away thinking, gosh, this sounds a little too good to be true, have you really communicated the gospel? Or have you communicated something less than, something that has to do with their behavior, something that has to do with them cleaning themselves up a bit? Right? See, being accused of preaching cheap grace, perhaps that's okay. Paul was. Paul got to the depths of the glorious freedom in the gospel. All right, so, so what happens when the accusations do come? That if you preach scandalous freedom, people are going to get crazy. What happens when people do actually abuse that freedom? And they will. What's the solution? What's the solution to that? What should we do? Should we stop talking about freedom? Right? If, if we don't mention that part, then maybe they won't abuse it. No, just because it can be abused doesn't mean it isn't true. Well, should we change the message a bit? Should we tone it down? Is, is that what Paul is doing here in verse 13? Right? You're free, but don't get crazy. Right? You're free, but just to be safe, we're going to dial it back a little bit. Is that what Paul's doing? No, the solution to the abuse of freedom is not to deny freedom or to water it down. It's to press into it all the more. The goal is to not try to be not, not quite so free, but to be truly free, fully free. And so Paul gives the solution starting at the end of verse 13. Don't abuse your freedom, but through love, serve one another. That is a somewhat unlikely antidote, I think, for abusing your freedom. Becoming a slave <laughs> to other folks. Because that, that word for serving there, that, that slave language, is basically the, the verb form of, of being a slave. So, in order to not abuse your freedom, freedom, right, become a slave again. Does that make sense? So, we've got a few things to work on here. Like, um, like how is that freedom to begin with? Because that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like slavery. Um, so, let's follow Paul's reasoning and try to make sense of this. Verse 14, he goes on. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is lifted straight out of Leviticus 19. 
All right, so here's a command that the Jews had. Now, it's interesting that they never really made a big deal about it. They made a big deal about a lot of things, but they, they never really made a big deal about this. Right? They, they were so unfamiliar with the concept even that when Jesus brings it up, recorded in John 13, right, that he calls it a new command. <laughs> right? You're so unfamiliar with the concept that's clearly there. Let's just say it's a new command. So the solution to abusing your freedom is becoming a slave, is serving one another. And we are to do this in love and motivated by and powered by love. This sacrificial serving and loving is the fulfillment of the whole law, Paul says. But wait a minute. Because I remember when Jesus was asked about the whole law and the greatest commandment, he gave two parts. And this is part two. Paul skipped part one, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So is Paul saying that's not important? Is that why he left it out? It's actually a, a question that, uh, that John Calvin dealt with in his commentary that was helpful on this. He said, God is invisible. Right? Can't see God. Our love for God can't be seen. We talk about it. We talk about it all day, all day long, how much I love God. But God is invisible. You can't see your love for God directly. But how it is seen is in our love for others. Our love for others shows that our love for God is real. And, and Jesus goes on in, in John 13 when he says, I've given, I'm giving you this new command. He goes on to, to tell what that's going to do. By this... By you doing this, all men will know that you are my disciples, right? They're going to know that you belong to me, that your love for me is real when you love each other. Uh, Paul's got another great place in Romans 13, um, talking about fulfilling the law and, and the relationship between that and love. So uh, Romans 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, there's so much to take in here that I really had to narrow this down. Um, and so this first one is a, is a bit of an aside, but it struck me this week. How perfect this is for Paul to use as the solution for abusing freedom in the Galatian context. Okay? So the Judaizers wanted to be righteous and holy and pleasing to God. And they were trying to get the Galatians to follow suit. But their focus was all on themselves. That's how they were going to do it. That's how they were going to be holy and righteous and pleasing. Is something that they could do to themselves, right? Some ceremony they could perform like circumcision is the big example uh, and the big sticking point in, in Galatians. 
right? I can do this ceremonial procedure so that I can be righteous and holy. I can be perfect in my little self-contained bubble of being right with God. So it's perfect, I think, that Paul's solution to abusing freedom isn't some type of holy introspection or discipline or ceremony. It's not inside you. It's outside of you. It's external. It's loving your neighbor. Right? So Paul's solution lifts our eyes off of ourselves, puts them on those around us. And so it's a great corrective. It's a great reminder that our righteous and holy living is not uh, independent or autonomous or self-contained. It's connected. It's relational. It's going to show itself in our love for others. Now, end of the rabbit trail. Um, we also need to look closely at this love being the fulfillment of the whole law. All right, Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the fulfillment of the whole law. Now, so are we, when we love our neighbor, are we fulfilling the whole law? Is that what this says? No, that's not what this says. Notice it's in the passive voice there. The whole law is fulfilled, not you fulfill the whole law. So who does the fulfilling? Who, who did the fulfilling? Who came not to abolish the law, Matthew 5, 17, but to fulfill it in its entirety? See, it's his fulfillment of the law that enables our loving our neighbors as ourselves. So you can go back to that John 13 where Jesus is giving this new commandment. And he says to do it, love your neighbor just as I have loved you. Well, how did he love us? Fully, freely, unconditionally, while we were unlovable, while we were still in our sin and rebellion. He loved us completely. He lived for us. He died for us. He suffered God's wrath in our place. And see, that love there, that's not love as an example for us to follow. That is love as transformational power to be loved like that to be the recipient of love like that changes and transforms us from the inside out it changes our hearts it changes our desires it changes our motivations and so so listen carefully if you hear anything this morning i think it is so important and i'm going to keep doing it to keep pressing the shocking truth of the gospel home to not let up at all, to keep telling you that Jesus' love for us is so free and so full and so unconditional and so unattached to our own obedience or righteousness that we really could live any way that we wanted to. And it wouldn't change his love for us one iota. We must, we must, must embrace that truth. That is the truth of the love of Jesus in the gospel. It is that full, it is that free. 
So no, I don't have to, or I'm not going to take back any of those shocking things that I said. I'm going to keep pressing into them. So here's the, the full deal now. Because of the deep, deep love of Jesus, we could live any way that we wanted. But the reality is, because of the deep, deep love of Jesus, we're not going to want to. We won't have any desire to do what we could do. See, the love of Jesus for us in the gospel is kryptonite for our desire to sin. To be loved so fully and so free and so completely that we could live any way we wanted to changes our hearts at the very core. So we have no desire for that. Love of Jesus in the gospel is kryptonite for our desire to sin. Now, sometimes it works overnight. You come to Christ, and instantly, this desire that you had, bleh, there's no way I want to do that. Instantly, my desire has been changed, right? So sometimes that happens, right? Other desires for sin will die a slow, painful, lifelong death. But the hope, the promise, is that because Jesus loved us like he did, because he fulfilled the law like he did, and gave us the benefits of those things freely, the hope and the promise is that we are being transformed. We will be changed We're not going to want to abuse that freedom. In fact, we're going to want to do the opposite. We're going to want to love and serve and be a slave to our pesky neighbors who bother us, who are hard to love. We're going to want to because we've been loved. And we've been changed by that love. Now, this is where I would love to just put a little bow on the sermon and say, all right, we're done. But darn it if Paul didn't throw this verse 15 in here too. Kind of a bit awkwardly, I think. Where did this come from, Paul? Why is this here? Bite and devour and consume. Right. This is the language of wild animals. So why here? Why now? Why in conjunction with all this? I think... We need to go back to those two enemies of the gospel. Back to legalism on the one hand of depending on the law to do what it can't, right? Which that's what Paul has spent the entirety of the letter combating, right? But also to the enemy of the gospel that is license, right? Completely disregarding, throwing law out the window. Because both of those lead to destruction in the church. See, if we're selfishly pursuing all the desires of our flesh, satisfying every pleasure that we have, well, if I'm doing that, then you're going to eventually get in my way. You're going to eventually stand in between me and the pleasure that I'm pursuing. 
and that's not going to work. Maybe I'm even looking to you to help satisfy that pleasure, to give me what I want. Maybe you're just a means to an end, and I'm going to use you to get what I want. But license is just as destructive. Uh, Legalism is just as destructive, rather. Because if I'm looking to the law and to my obedience in order to measure up, then eventually I'm going to start tearing you down if you don't measure up. What a loser. Why can't you keep up? It's not that hard. Or maybe it is that you do measure up. Boy, do you measure. In fact, you outmeasure me. <laughs> well, then I've got to start tearing you down. I've got to find the flaw somewhere. Surely you can't be that good because you are making my goodness not look so good. Right? See, neither living by the law nor denying the law creates any kind of sustainable, loving Christian community. See, it's only as we celebrate the freedom that we do have in Christ and pursue the fullest expression of that freedom by loving each other the way that we've been loved, then then we'll be the church. Then folks will see us and they'll, they'll know that our love for God is real. They'll know that we belong to Jesus and that we're his disciples. And that's a whole other place that we could have gone in this is how our freedom will ultimately lead to others being free as well. Lots to think about, lots to ponder, reflect upon. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for freedom. Thank you for the love that Jesus has for us that is so full and so rich and free that it changes our very desires. We're not going to want to do what we could do. We're going to want to do what you desire. We're going to want to do what you know is best for us. Oh, Father, lead us to living lives that please you and that are conformed to our Savior. But, oh, Lord, do it through the path of gospel freedom and not through the path of our own behavior modification and determination and discipline. Help us to get the difference. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.